Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This is the radio show that really does go all around the world. We're heard in almost every country of the planet, every week at this time. And this is the global business radio show for entrepreneurs. If you're listening for the first time, we tell it exactly the way it is. We try to bring you information that can help you and and bring you up to date with what's happening among entrepreneurs and developments across the world. And we do everything we can to assist you to... um, make your business a little bit more successful. We're also proud of the fact that we're the number one radio show globally for entrepreneurs, and we thank all of you for that. It's only due to you, the listeners. We really appreciate it. Over the last few weeks, I've spoken several times about wearables, and you know I've been pretty critical of Google Glass. It's extremely unattractive, I reckon. And uh, I've also been critical of smartwatches because you look like you're wearing an old-fashioned TV set on your on your wrist. They are ugly. Well, it seems that Americans agree with me and are ditching wearable technology just months after purchasing them. So I guess the question is, are wearables all that this cracked up to be? As convenient as smartwatches are for providing alerts or a fitness band for keeping us in the loop as to how far we walked, not that I really give a damn, Um, do we really want to wear these things? A lot of people don't wear watches because they don't want anything cumbersome on their wrists, so they've got lousy battery life. Some of them make people itch, and what's happened is in the States, people have just stopped wearing them. They keep them a couple of months, don't wear them anymore. And that's the findings of a new study by Endeavour Partners. One in 10 Americans, which is a pretty small figure really, I guess, um, has purchased a wearable device. So one, that's a pretty small figure. But secondly, it tells you just how big a, a potential market there is. Um, but there's a real problem with people actively using them over the long term. In fact, the survey found that more than half of the US consumers that had owned one no longer use it, not even the um, activity tracker. And usually the people who wear them are all health freaks and all of that, and they, they want their fix on how far they've worked or what their pulse rate is. Even they're not wearing them. So why did people ditch them? Was it just because they're irritating or didn't they live up to the, to the hype that they've got? Well, it sure sounds like it. In fact, a third of US consumers who have owned a wearable stopped using it within six months of receiving it and never put it back on. So that's got to be an area of focus for um, those who are making wearable OEMs in the future. So it's obviously it's obviously not enough to sync with or link to or even work alongside one of the current devices in the market 
or even partner with one of the many startups who are focusing on designing a better but even more attractive device. I think the the key to long-term success in this highly competitive wearables market has got to be to create a strategy to ensure that people keep wearing them. So there appears to be nine ways that companies can help create a wearable that people are going to want to continue to wear. Firstly, work on creating a messages to why consumers should wear one in the first place. Secondly, focus on design. They are so ugly. And then create an easy setup experience. Ensure that they're a good fit, that they're comfortable, they're high quality, they don't bring you out in a niche or some sort of rash. <laughs> then there's the user, user experience, which needs to be able to integrate into a whole bunch of other devices. And developing a lifestyle compatibility that doesn't require the user to remove the wearable every five minutes to charge it. I mean, that's going to be a continuing problem is battery life. Now, there are other ways, um, I guess, to keep people coming back to their wearables, um, create habits, reinforce goals that a user might want to achieve, um, and with a little creativity, I'm sure that all those smart app developers out there can come up with a whole bunch of things that could really benefit the user. You know, I guess it can be said that, you know, we're only in early days, but unless some entrepreneurs begin developing apps that people need and are not just trendy for this minute, I reckon wearables are going to have a pretty short shelf life. I mean, you put on a pair of Google Glass and they're cute for a minute. No, I find that after that they get really annoying. Um, so while on the subject of wearables, KGI securities analyst Ming Chai Kuo He's been very accurate, you might remember, in his predictions about Apple hardware. You know, he's been, he's picked it almost every time. He's saying that um, some models of the iWatch will cost over $1,000 when it's out in the third quarter of this year. Kyo believes that the iWatch will ship during the end of the third quarter, offering biometric functionality, integration with the iPhone, the iPad, and the Mac and have a fashionable appearance. That'd be a good start. As has been previously suggested, the Mac will come in two sizes with a 1.3-inch and a 1.5-inch flexible display. Still 1.5-inch clunky thing on your wrist. It will also include a sapphire cover lens, biometric recognition, an NFC chip, wireless charging, a 200 to 250 milliamp per hour battery, and a slim light design. He believes that Apple will offer the iWatch at multiple price points with the most expensive version costing over $1,000. God, it seems to me that if people stop wearing Pebble, which is Kind of cute, I suppose. Um, at a cost of just 150 bucks, how many people are going to buy an iWatch priced at over a thousand? Seems to me that you'll sell one to every wanker on the planet, but <laughs> not many else. Um, I got a note this morning that uh, Google is patented 
a new contact lens. You know, I told you a few weeks ago about the contact lens that um, measures your uh, blood sugar levels and flashes through LED lights in the eye when your sugars deviate from the norm. Well, Google have now patented a camera in a contact lens. So, whew, I'd rather wear a contact lens with a camera in it than a Google Glass, I've got to tell you. But that's a fantastic innovation. Last week, Fred Wilson, you might remember, he's the New York City-based um, venture capitalist and co-founder of Union Square Ventures. He pops up all the time. Um, they've got investments in, I'm just trying to think, Twitter, Tumblr, um, Foursquare, Xenia, Kickstarter, a whole bunch of stuff. And he uh, came out last week and said that tech is biased towards younger people. But is that right? Are these tech guys that are getting all the dough, are they pimpled, hoodie-wearing 20-year-olds who can't do much else? The reality is that 20-something founders are quite common amongst those who have built billion-dollar businesses. There's loads of them. The average age at founding of a billion-dollar business was just 31. So I think I missed my, I missed my uh, 31-year-old joining of a billion-dollar business. So... There's no um, question that 20-something entrepreneurs are very well represented amongst all these successful entrepreneurs. You, you have a look at uh, any of the trades and uh, everybody's pretty young. So founders under the age of 35 represent a very significant proportion of founders in that billion-dollar club and they're probably the majority. So those concerned with ageism will probably suggest that the relatively young age of founders in the Billion Dollar Club confirms that VCs are biased towards young entrepreneurs. However, it just might be that they're a bloody sight smarter or more in tune with the market, of course. Now, sceptics of the ageing charge might see the data as confirmation that 20-something founders are disproportionately likely to build extremely valuable companies. And I must admit, I fall into that category. So, while this data doesn't settle that debate, it does confirm that many of Silicon Valley's most successful bets have been on 20-year-old entrepreneurs. However, as these companies grow, they bring in experienced staff to, to run them, bring in experienced CEOs and presidents of companies, and uh, they're significantly older. So the entrepreneurs are 30 or in their 20s, and the people that come in to actually take these companies forward are in their, actually the average age, I just noticed, is 42. So they're about 10 or 12 years more experience when they're looking for people who actually run the company. So I guess some of this also reflects the fact that um, when, you know, they get older, as the companies progresses, so they might, even if the founder becomes a CEO, he's not going to come the, um, the CEO for a few years. Makes him a bit older. Now, if you had then have a look at the um, 
S&P 500, the average age of an incoming CEO is 53. So the old and boring companies, 53 years old. The hip, slick and cools, 30 years old. Now, Google's going to soon be integrating Comscore's validated campaign essentials measurement into its double-click ad business. Great idea. And this will help boost advertisers' ability to track online ad campaigns in real time. Now, this is a very good tool for selling to the establishment who um, is still unbelievably a little bit sceptical. So this is a multi-year deal that will cover display ads on video and on all your mobile devices. Google will be able to share more data and analytics with its advertisers and uh, they're hoping that they can continue to suck all this money away from traditional advertising and onto the digital, into the digital I'll try that again, and into the digital world. Um, you know, over the last three months, there's been, that I know of, about $300 million plus deals that have come from traditional media, particularly television, and gone into digital. Now, this uh, program is all about entrepreneurs, and this week, I want to salute a group of 16-year-old technology entrepreneurs whose ThinkSpace coding project has won the backing of Virgin boss Richard Branson and Steve Wozniak, who, as we know, was one of the Apple founders with Steve Jobs. Now, I was speaking um, a couple of weeks ago about a speech, I, a presentation I saw with uh, Thomas Suarez in um, Los Angeles, where he talked about the fact that in China, nearly 100% of high school students can write code and in, a, and in the United States and Australia and Great Britain, the number of kids at high school that can write code is about 4%. So 25 times more kids can write code in China than in the United States, Britain and Australia. Now, these three teenagers, three 16-year-olds, launched ThinkSpace in September, and it creates spaces in schools which resemble Google's headquarters. Unbelievable if you've ever been to Google. It is extraordinary. And they're for students to learn how to code. And so after receiving the support of Richard Branson and Stephen Fry and Twitter CEO um, Dick Costolo, the team are opening applications for students between 13 and 18 to become ThinkSpace pioneers and it's aimed at linking young coders up to key figures in the tech industry. So James Anderson, Cameron Malik and Oliver Bredemeyer want to put a Google campus in every school and they've now got interest from 400 schools since it launched just a few months ago. So um, Anderson said, these are the people that we believe they, that can come the next Mark Zuckerberg. So far, they've attracted a fantastic group of really, really talented individuals, and they invite them to events to introduce them to important people in the industry. I think that's a, an amazing initiative. 
Richard Branson said that schools have not been great at educating people in the real world. Here, here, we talk about that all the time on this program. So it's fantastic that ThinkSpace is actually going into schools, help people create apps and teach them how to do it. Now, you know, we've been on a a um, rampage over the last few weeks about the fact that we don't educate people for the real world. We teach them a whole bunch of crap that's of no use to them whatsoever and the stuff that's going to help them be entrepreneurs in the future, we carefully ignore. So um, so we at the Bob Pritchard Radio Show salute James, Cameron and Oliver and, of course, Branson, Wozniak and the other business leaders have, have supported them. It really is a fantastic initiative. So this program is all about entrepreneurs. So we salute you whether you've opened a dry cleaning store or whether you've developed a new app. We don't care if you're 14 or whether you're 114. If you're an entrepreneur and you've got enough guts to go out there and give it a go and put your life on hold while you do it and jeopardize all your relationships, we are a huge fan and we'll do it whatever we can to assist you. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. It's all about helping entrepreneurs become more successful. If you've got a question or you have somebody that you would like me to interview, drop me an email at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will definitely get back to you. Also, check out my new website, bobpritchard.com. Let me know what you think of it. Now, after the break, I'm going to be talking with a great guy. He really is a super guy, Chris Adams. He's also bloody smart. And he's the global CEO and executive director of online video streaming syndication company Spondo. Now, they've enjoyed huge successes of late. And But let me just tell you quickly a little bit about Chris. He's um, He's got extraordinary credits. They're groundbreaking. They go on for pages and pages and pages. Um, he's a media pioneer. Um, entertainment and technology executive, and his background includes Facebook, Amazon, Lycos, HBO, Comcast, Cable Interactive, and Glam.com, where he built Glam TV. He was involved with movies that were nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Um, he was part of the drive behind An Inconvenient Truth with... Al Gore, and he's just published his third children's book, which is narrated by Hugh Jackman, and all profits go to the Global Poverty Project and World Vision. He's a super bloke. He loves surfing. He's got a young family that he's really proud of, and I'll have him on just after the break. Now, you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business, and I'll be back with my mate Chris in just a minute. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. 
Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary people, people that are successful, people that are making a difference. You know, there's some extraordinarily talented people in this world, and I love speaking with them because there's so much that they can teach all of us. And my aim in these interviews is to find out what the characteristics are they have that makes them great and what we can learn from them that can help us be successful. It's bloody hard to be successful, so we don't want to be making mistakes other people before us have made and can show us how not to make them. Today, my guest is Chris Adams, who I met at Metal um, in Los Angeles probably about a year and a bit ago, and I interviewed him on the program almost exactly 12 months ago to the day. And Chris had not long been appointed global CEO and executive director to online video streaming syndication company Spondo. And I promised at the time that I would check in and just see how that was going. Now, just to refresh you, Chris has a world-class groundbreaking credit to go on for pages and pages and pages. So rather than bore you, I'll just tell you a little bit. He's an internationally recognized new media pioneer, media, entertainment, and technology executive. Through his longtime consulting company, Orbit Media Group, Chris held... Senior management roles with Facebook, Amazon, Lycos, HBO, Comcast, Cable and Interactive and Glam.com where he built Glam TV. He was involved in participant media and movies such as Syriana, North Country, Good Night and Good Luck and Charlie Wilson's War, which between them were nominated for 11 Academy Awards. He was also involved with An Inconvenient Truth with um, former Vice President Al Gore which um, won, as you know, an Academy Award and also contributed strongly to Gore being given the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, he's just published his third children's book, and it's narrated by his friend Hugh Jackman, and all profits will benefit the Global Poverty Project and World Vision. Chris is from Pennsylvania, married an Australian girl, and is now living in Brisbane. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Hi, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. First and foremost, how are Sharon and Cooper? That's the first question. And secondly, <laughs> are. are you doing all the surfing that you wanted to do? 
Yeah, well, thank you for that, Bob. Sharon and Cooper, my wife and my son, are wonderful. Um, as I like to say, I'm the only one in the family with an accent. Yep. Um, so <laughs> they are, uh, you know, Sharon being an Aussie, um, you know, born in Wollongong and, and grew up in Brizzy, um, she's very happy to be home. And, and my son has taken to the Australian lifestyle, uh, not only shedding his uh, his American accent where he was born very quickly, but um, he's now tucked into the footy and, uh, and the great Australian lifestyle. And, um, yeah, and I, and I am doing a bit of surfing. Um, Good. you know, I, I, uh, I get in the water as much as I can in between, uh, uh, travel for, uh, for Spondo and, and for other things. So, um, so I'm loving it here. Good. Now, when you moved to Australia, I said at the time, I thought it was pretty weird move as the technology capital of the world. Um, and your enviable list of contacts are mostly in Silicon Valley, or at that stage they were. How has Spondo progressed since we last spoke? You know, it's progressed a lot, Bob, and, and, and thank you for that. Um, and, and yes, it, you know, a lot of people question the move, but, um, but at the same time, you know, it was very simple for me. Is, is, you know, you, as I like to say, you can take the girl out of Australia, but you can't take the Australia out of the girl, and that's a good thing. So when, yeah. uh, when, my, wife, uh, when my wife and I got married in 2000, she moved over and, and left you know, friends, family, and her very successful interactive digital agency business. We made a promise that when we had kids, we would raise them Australian. So it was um, it, it was a very personal move. Right. Um, and yet, what I've found in coming here is that the quality and the character of the entrepreneurship and the innovation, uh, the invention um, in Australia is on par with any place in the world. I mean, you can you can build a global business, which I'm endeavouring to do uh, from Australia. That. Um, can impact the world, and um, you know, Spondo's grown quite a bit. Uh, when, when I last spoke to you, we were we were just starting. Yeah, you were. To yeah, to to really um, put our value proposition forward, and and that being that that what Spondo does is we empower anyone with a website or a social page like Facebook or a blog to become a commercial broadcaster. Um, right. This is very innovative, very disruptive. You know, in in the in the world of Netflix and Hulu and YouTube and iTunes. Um, Certainly, the world has many choices in which to watch video, but it has very little power and control over how to directly impact that audience. So we're trying to take the entire thing on its head, uh, the, very much the way that WordPress did with journalism. Right. You know, there, was, there were editors and, and newspapers and news channels, and that was it. You, know, yes. you were told what to learn, what to think, and what to watch and what to read by a series of monolithic media um, companies and journalists. And while that's fine... Because you mean that's you know, changed? Account- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> well, we're trying to change it. We're trying to change it, Bob. You know? We're trying to change it the way that you know, WordPress allowed anyone to become a citizen journalist. Well, well, we're trying to empower the world to become citizen broadcasters. Right. Um, I hear you've put movies into Facebook for purchase. Is that yeah. unique? Is that something totally different? It, it, it is unique in that um, not a lot of people are doing it. Um, there have been there have been individual instances over the last couple of years where where companies have said, "Hey, let's try to sell a movie in Facebook." But for one reason or another, they didn't get the technology right, they didn't get the marketing right, they didn't get the movie right. right. So what we've kind of done is instead of looking at Facebook as kind of a just simply another distribution channel. Um, we've tried to look at Facebook in the way that Facebook looks at itself. You know, Facebook is about social recommendation. It is about yes. true connections. Um, social media and mobile social media are about trust and they're about connecting with your friends to make decisions. So what we've, what we've done is while we technically 
put movies into Facebook and, and we had a world first launch uh, last October where we put 230 Halloween and horror themed movies into Facebook around the Halloween holiday, which right. went very, very well. We got international press and all that stuff. Yep. Um, really, it was just a way of saying what we're trying to do is that if you are a content producer and you have content that is being promoted through online real estate like Facebook, you should be able to monetize that directly as opposed to use social media to drive your customer and your revenues to iTunes and Netflix. Right. Well, you know, if, if you have a, you know, if, if you're Warner Brothers and CBS and you have um, the Big Bang Theory Facebook page, which has 13 million likes on it. Right. Well, if you're spending money, time and resources, your ROI, in fact, on that Facebook page directly is zero. Well, yep. why don't you start changing that? Um, and similarly, even more importantly, is that we believe that everyone's got a voice. Everyone's got an opinion. You know, movies, television, documentaries, books, and music are ubiquitous. They're, they're part of the, sure. the conversation of, of our passion. Yep. You know, who we are as people, it can be, uh, can be very much seen in the content that we love. So why not kind of express your passion for content and make money from it? You know, we're democratizing broadcasting in a yeah. lot of ways. Well, it, it's, it's really interesting at the moment because if you look at um, L.A., the... Um, the new studios, you know, Amazon, Google, Apple, um, it's, it's totally changing. There's a couple of big law, um, court cases at the moment that could change the way um, entertainment's distributed. That's right. It yeah. is a massive disruption to that whole broadcasting industry, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and look, you know, the, the great thing is, is that it's been working for a very long time. Okay. You know, theaters and Blockbuster Video and Netflix are exactly the same thing, all right? They are pieces of real estate, whether physical or virtual, in which people go and shop, yes. right? And the same thing has happened. The studios and the marketing budgets, they kind of tell you what is there. They highlight content. You get to choose, but at the same time, they are giving you the offering. And yet, the disruption is coming in the world of on demand, in the world of choice, in the world of trust, you know, if, if you, I mean, I, I see this all the time on my Facebook feed is that people want to watch a movie or they want to watch a TV show. So instead of going to Google or going to Blockbuster or going to Netflix or going to Hulu, they ask their friends. They yeah. say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the, I've got nothing to do tomorrow night. I want to go to a movie. What should I see? And yeah. yes, you will get the usual suspects. You'll say, oh, well, Captain America, right? Right. But, there's also people saying, I just saw this amazing movie. The problem is, is that that trust that you imply. So if I trust Bob Pritchard to make, uh, to, to have a great taste in movies. Yeah, you'd be an idiot says, for one. Hypothetically. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> so, so if I trust you and you make a recommendation, here's the problem. It's really hard to find that movie. Yeah. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is say, look, your taste, your passion, your curation, you know, is really important, but we want to have everybody participate in the revenue stream. I mean, a really great analogy is what Spotify is doing. You know, yeah. this is this wonderful yeah. open marketplace in which you can curate playlists. Those playlists become part of your personality. They become part of the stamp that is you. However, the only people making money on that is Spotify, Yeah. right? So why shouldn't I as an individual or, or, or someone else as a blogger or a content producer, an independent filmmaker, or, you know, an author or a musician, why shouldn't everybody from Warner Brothers down to somebody who loves, you know, fishing um, and wants to set up their own fishing network or somebody who loves footy and wants to set up their own 
footy show. Yeah. Um, everybody should participate in the joy of sharing content, um, but it's time to make money. Does it have a detrimental effect on the industry as a whole, though, with the, with it getting fragmented? Um, talking to people like Scott Ross, who was the head of um, Industrial Light and Magic, and where they had huge budgets for development of, of new technology and whatever. Um, now that it's so fragmented and there's so many more studios and there's so much more targeting through through various um, online channels, is that just taking money away from development of the industry as a whole? Look, I, 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 I think that's the way that the traditional media business looks at it, and that is both fear and also, um, uh, you know, kind of sitting sitting on your monolithic p- uh, pillar. I, I yeah. think that the thing that will that what what people tend to forget, in my opinion, is that no matter how many channels, no matter how many producers, no matter how many creators, all right, storytelling is the center of it. I mean, just because there's more content out there and more channels to watch it, well, that means that there's a lot more crap. All right. But there's also a lot more good stuff. The problem is not the fragmentation. The problem is the discovery and the recommendation and the trust. And I've seen, you know, we've all seen kind of the rise of the Internet and social create these incredible communities around affinities that, you know, maybe I am not into some subject theme or genre, but a lot of other people are. Yeah. Um, and they struggle. These people who have audiences, these people who have content or both, they really struggle to make money because what I think the big, the, the big trick that the Internet has kind of pulled over everybody's eyes or has we've allowed to be pulled over our eyes is that if you're a content creator or you are a blogger or you have an audience, you are absolutely required to use Facebook and Google Plus and YouTube and Twitter and all of these other platforms to evangelize and create awareness. All right. And a lot of it, especially in the content creation, is that I'm going to go and spend money on making a movie. I'm going to use the uh, the Internet and social in order to evangelize it. I am going to try to push people all around the place and try to make little fractional pennies of, of, of revenue. But ultimately, I'm trying to get people to pay attention to me so I can get another job. Yeah. Right now. So we're trying to break that. Right. We're trying to say you spend all your time making content. You spend all your time gathering an audience. You have an opinion. Sell directly. Make money directly. And then where we feel this fragmentation becomes really powerful is the idea of syndication. Right. Right. So I'm a movie maker. I have a Facebook page and I have a website for my movie. I can sell directly using Spondo. I can also syndicate my content to Spondo and Spondo will allow anyone in the world to take that movie or show or video or book or song and sell it to their audience. So you have direct income and you have passive income. How does that work with royalties? Uh, look, you know, it, it's a good question. Um, yeah, our that'd view be a shit fight it, and a half. <laughs> well, it, it is, except that that's not our problem. I mean, right. to be very blunt, it's not our problem. So we pay the content, the IP owner. Yeah, yeah. That IP owner is then tasked with fulfilling their contractual obligations. So we don't have a view on territorial uh, rights. We don't have a view on windows. We don't have a view on royalties. We're writing an IP owner a check. And they need to then fulfill on their contractual obligations. If someone comes to us and says, I have this piece of content that is available only in this territory, great, we can geoblock it. 
So we certainly encourage people to look differently. You know, the Internet is, by definition, um, global. Yep. So, you know, if you want to do geoblock, that's fine. But Facebook is not a geoblocked uh, presence. So in many ways, we're having um, we, we have customers right now that are putting their content on Spondo prior to putting it on, uh, you know, cable TV, VOD, wow. theatrical, all that stuff. Because they go, look, there's 1.2 billion people on Facebook. There's 4 billion people on the web. Yep. Um, I'm spending money and time and energy anyway on these platforms. I've got a better chance of making money by being my own distributor than I do begging for somebody to pay attention to me. And unless it's Iron Man, they're going to rotate me into kind of the crap that doesn't get promoted on Netflix and iTunes and discovery is going to be impossible. Sure. Um, the Red Herring Top 100 Award, um, that, for those of you who don't know, it's, a, it's an award that um, highlights the most exciting startups from Asia, Europe and the Americas, and uh, entrants are evaluated in a really rigorous three-step process that looks at all aspects of the company. When you go and look through Red Herring and all of the elements that they take into account before they... Um, um, determine winners of the Red Herring Award, it's amazing. I mean, it is the most thorough evaluation of startups yeah. I've ever seen. Now, it it's a big deal. And you guys won both the Top 100 Asia and Global 100 Award last we year. Did, yeah. That's incredible performance. Now, what does that mean for your company? I mean, does well, that really Bob, mean anything or does that, that just means that all the um, other tech heads in the world just think you're real smart bastards? <laughs> well, what does it mean, you know? What does it's it mean a, it's in terms of, of... <laughs> It's a little bit of both. I mean, look, we, we, were, we were blown away and really humbled. Um, uh, not only, you know, especially by the global. Um, yeah. We went to Asia. We were the, we were the only Australian company, um, which, which was amazing because there were some incredible Australian companies. Um, and we were the only one to compete. We were the only one to get in the top 100. And we were one of a group, you know, there were, there were hundreds and hundreds of people in Asia hundreds of competitors and it was sure. it was mind blowingly rigorous. I mean it was one of the it, most it, and I pitched you know yeah, I, agree. I pitched for a living my entire life and the pitching that went on there was so unbelievably difficult. Um, and the competition was mind blowing. I mean I got up there in a pre revenue company that had just done something amazing putting movies in Facebook. Um, yeah. and the guy before me had a company that was valued at six hundred million dollars. He was doing hundred and forty three million dollars in revenue. He had you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in VC financing, and he was in 14 countries. And I went, oh, God, you know, there's no yeah. way I'm going to get it. Yeah. And we did because that criteria is not just about the kind of Silicon Valley VC metrics. It's about the way you pitch. It's about your, you know, uh, with Spondo, we are creating a market. We're not right. penetrating a market. We're actually creating a market. Yep. So innovation, imagination, chutzpah has a lot to do with it. So, you know, we got the, the Asia award. It helped us raise some money and it certainly was very powerful in that we were the only Australian company to be recognized. Well, then red herring goes out of the top 100 Asia, top 100 North America, top 100 Europe. They handpick and invite 200 companies to come to Los Angeles and pitch again. Right. right. We were selected and we were one of, I believe it was only three startups. Right. And in, out of out of two out of the out of the three hundred two hundred were picked. Out of that two hundred, there were only three startups. And out of those three startups, we were one of two 
that actually ended up with the Global 100 Award. So, it, look, it, it's, 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 it's humbling to the point of almost, you know, confusion. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's, a, it's a seriously big deal. Can, can I just ask you a question? You have recently been attracting some really serious top-notch talent to this company. And I've got a, a question. I don't mean it to be rude. How, I'm interested in the fact that you call yourself an Australian company. Um, and yet it seems to me that it's almost Australian in name only, isn't it? Or the fact Look, that it's registered it, 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 here or no. whatever. But you're, you're right. You're right, Bob, in that we, we view ourselves as a global company. Um, yeah. You know, we have an office in Los Angeles that is helmed by, you know, the, the folks at Roar, which are you know, sure. one of the top talent managements and corporate advisory firms. And they have, while they have a specialty in kind of cross-border Asia-Pac Australian business, um, yeah. they have clients all over the world. Um, yeah. Most of our customers on the content side and most of our, 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 our users on the consumer side are in North America. We are in we're an Australian company in that we're, a, you know, a, a, an Australian party limited. Um, the company was born here. Yeah. Um, to date, to date, all of the investments has come from here and that will change. But what we're, what we're really doing is we are, we are celebrating our Australian heritage by saying that, look, we can be a global force while having an Australian history. Um, we certainly are moving right now to having many, much of our commercial center um, operating out of Los Angeles, it just makes sense for the business and for our investors. Yeah, well, if but you we have don't a... need to, we don't need to pull up roots and, and oh, no, I, leave I, from Australia. Yeah, no, I just, I just find it interesting that um, you call yourself an Australian company, and yet you know there's not too many guys from Footscray in the team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly. Well, look, and, the other important thing, Bob, yeah. and this is very strategic, is that I don't think you can call yourself a global company unless you're doing business in Asia. Um, and no you know, Google, Google, Yahoo, Facebook, and Twitter are not doing business in Asia, and a lot of that has to do with culture and politics. I mean, a lot of them got kicked out. Well, you know, here's here's just one of the great things about being in Australia is that everybody loves Australians. We have incredible trade relationships with with sure. Southeast Asia and Asia. Yeah. We can if if we can do it in Facebook, we can do it in Renren Ren and QQ and Tencent and Baidu and Abu Dhabi. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're, we really want to strategically retain our Australian presence so that we can easily and powerfully impact the East and kind of wrap the globe going, you know, going up, going up and west to uh, or up, up and east to the west and out and west to the east. You know, yeah, so but, we're but, sitting between, you know, we're sitting between Silicon Valley and, 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 and Beijing. Um, and it's a great place to be. Well, it's, it's really interesting. I, last week I did a comparison between the Chinese equivalents of all of the companies that we think are mega successful um, yeah. in the West and the Chinese equivalents of everybody are bigger. Have much bigger. You know, they're, they're much bigger. It's, it's a bit yeah. like, you know, Vegas is the gambling capital of the world. Well, uh, go to Macau. You know, it's 10 That's times exactly, bigger. exactly right. And I, exactly I agree. Right. If you're not doing business in Asia, you're certainly not a global company. So what's well, the next six to 12 months look like for you guys? Where do you go now? Yeah, Somebody, it's very some, exciting. Somebody's going to buy you before long. Somebody's going to buy us. Yes. Yeah, so look, our, our view is very, very simple. Uh, in the age of you know Instagram and Snapchat and WhatsApp, which yeah. are wonderful, incredible, elegant platforms that never had any 
idea how to nor plans for revenue. I mean, we're a cash register for content in social media. Sure. Um, we solve problems for YouTube and for iTunes and for Amazon and for Netflix and for big MSOs and giant media companies. Um, our, uh, we have reversed engineered in our planning um, an exit. So the next six to 12 months is really a couple of, 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 um, of very specific points. One is we're going out to try to raise a big whack of cash on the back of uh, a product redesign um, that we're lucky enough to have the folks at Joseph Mark who are um, most famous yep. for doing MySpace and, yep. you know, DLA for Carlos Slim and Netflix. Um, so th- they've taken a shine to us and, and, and are working with us on a, on a product redesign. We have some very large partnerships um, that are that are evolving with the likes of Synodyme and you know Beyond Entertainment and some other people. Um, with all of a mind to what we want to do later on in the year, call it you know October November is our target. Is we want to launch the big Spondo marketplace, um, meaning we want to have a very very significant amount of, of content with a automated and seamlessly integrated platform and then tell the world very simply, if you'd like to be a broadcaster and share revenue on your passion for content, sign up, curate, publish. Right. Right. So that's our plan. Right now we are putting products in the market in a very um, individual customized way. Yeah. Um, So individual manual installations. A lot of it is working with producers and filmmakers and content owners and library holders and really getting the market educated on what we're doing. But we've got about six months on a big whack of cash in front of us um, that will then execute. And we want to come out big, fast, and hard on this and say, and just disrupt the entire industry. You know, the way that there was no messaging before Twitter, Twitter came whack. You know, all of a sudden, we're all doing it, right? Um, so that's yeah. our goal, you know, and, and it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, yeah. But we've got, you know, we've got the people. I think this, uh, yeah. we've, we've, and we've, you know, we've got the people, we've got the products, we've got the knowledge, um, you know, fundraising in Australia is extremely hard. So we're reaching out and trying to fund, sure. start trying to find fundraising everywhere in the world. Um, but, uh, we're very excited about what we're doing. Yeah, that's great. Wayne, this is where you're, you know, when you want to get bought out, this is where your friends in Silicon Valley come to play, I guess. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, Everybody tells me, why haven't you gone there yet? Well, there's a couple of reasons. You know, one, we have a corporate structure, which is unfamiliar to the Silicon Valley um, world, you know, public unlisted with a number of shareholders, blah, blah, blah. But number two, and more importantly, is that I'm very fortunate to have spent you know, most of my career at kind of the upper echelons in Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Yep. So I know, I know those guys and I know what they're looking for. Sure. And it doesn't really make any sense for me to go and just kind of rattle on and mouth off up there right now. They all know, you know, I know them, they know what I'm doing. Um, there will come a time in the very near future in which I will be able to plunk myself down there with strength and open the dialogue. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Chris, good to talk to you. I hope that we can get Wonderful together to to later this week and, and have lunch or a beer or something. Oh, and, you, can, you can count on it. I'd love that. And uh, so thanks very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're a great guy. You're really down to earth. Thank you. You're very you, bloody Bob. smart. And uh, <laughs> you've been helpful to me on, on a couple of occasions in the past, and I really do appreciate that greatly. Now, if you'd like to it's find out more about Chris and Spondo... You can go to spondo.com, that's S-P-O-N-D-O.com. I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business right after this short break.
Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This is the no bullshit business show where we tell, tell it the way it is and hoping that we can help as many entrepreneurs be successful as is possible. In this segment, normally I answer emails, but... I get so many emails saying, you talk a lot about um, digital and new media, but what about we people who do the old-fashioned stuff? What about us? So, and a lot of people talk about advertising and uh, how you get an ad or a communication that sells. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a... um, you're writing an email or a text or you're writing a letter or you're creating an, an advertisement or whatever, exactly the same rules apply. So I thought I'd devote this section in just telling you what it is that works. What are the elements that work in effective communication, no matter what form that communication is? And of course, that includes new and digital media as well. So now's the time to grab a pen and paper. So grab yourself a pen grab yourself a sheet of paper, and if you don't get all this down, then you can go to the archives at Voice America Business and listen to the show later on, and in fact, all of the shows we've done for the last three years, and all of the hundred and whatever it is interviews, they're all available on the archives. Now, in order of importance, the 10 things that you need to be aware of in any form of communication are as follows. Now, this is in order of importance. Firstly, the heading. Secondly, a photo or a graphic. Thirdly, a caption for that photo or graphic. Fourth, your consumer purchasing benefit. Now, we've spoken about this a number of times. Then you need a couple of extra emotional benefits. You need a risk reversal. You need to add value, you need a call to action, payment, and then once you've got all that in place, test, test, test. So let's run through those one at a time. We start off with the heading, and the heading is the most critical part of any communication, whether it's a a newspaper ad, the subject of your emails, radio message, no matter what it is. If your subject matter doesn't absolutely grab the reader or the listener, they're going to switch off. Between 80 and 100% of people do not read or listen past the headline. So you have to engage the reader. We had a situation recently where 94% of respondents thought there was no real difference between our client's product and a competitor. So we simply came up with a headline, so you think there's no difference between product A and product B? Well, think again. 
And that got people then to read it to see what the difference was. Now, the most effective headlines are those that provide a testimonial or state a fact. So if you've got a number of competitors, your headline should highlight the real or the perceived, a perceived point of difference is just as important as a real one, point of difference. Now, second most important is a photograph, an illustration, or a graphic. So after being grabbed by a really powerful headline, nearly 85% of people now look at the graphic or the photo. Could be an illustration. And now this has got to reinforce the headline's message, which gives you that additional hook. And if you don't have a graphic that reinforces the headline, don't use any. Third, caption. Always provide a caption that strongly reinforces the message that's being conveyed. Real-life situations that a reader can or a listener can readily relate to are really powerful, but just not some washy descriptive um, caption. It's got to relate back to the headline and reinforce whatever your message is. The fourth most important element is your consumer purchasing benefit. Now, we've talked about this a lot. We're in a world where almost every category is getting commoditized. And once you're commoditized, you're dead. Then you, then you compete based on price. When you compete based on price, you make less profit. You make less profit. You become less competitive. You become less competitive. Eventually, you disappear up your own ass. So the per- consumer purchasing benefit is the most powerful sales tool in the marketer's armory. It is that powerful. It's the driving force in differentiating your company from your competition. And research has shown that a good CPB can influence over 77% of purchase decisions. So you need that consumer purchasing benefit. Now, if when you look at the Fortune 500 companies, 487 of them have a CPB for the company or for its major products. That's 99% nearly. By contrast, when you look at SMEs, only about 3% of them have a consumer purchasing benefit. So if it's good enough for the big guys, why don't the little guys have them? And you've got to realize that a CPB is not a slogan. Slogans and logos have pretty low recall rates, around about 5%, except if you look at, I guess, Nike swoosh or target circles, where effective CPBs have a recall rate of over 80%. And the most effective CPBs are, um, they're emotional because every decision we make is emotional and they're directed specifically to the customers. You know, my, I guess my favourites, I've got lots of favourites, but my favourites are Nike, Just Do It. I mean, that's brilliant. It appeals to the uh, independence and the rebellion of youth. Wheaties, the breakfast of champions. It insinuates that if you're not eating Wheaties, you're not a champion. Or if, you know, what would you rather feed your kid? The breakfast that the champions eat or this other crap? So it's very powerful. And, and I think one of the best and best ones is Coppertone. Tan, 
don't burn. So it says what you want and what you don't want in three very simple words. A company called Flare, Bathroom Vanities, um, we created the CPB Affordable Bathroom Elegance for them because their stuff looked exactly the same as all their competitors. So we were stating very forcefully that they were elegant. We addressed everybody's desire, then stated that everybody really cares about style and elegance can really afford it. And they increased sales by 37% in their first year of adoption. So affordable bathroom elegance said it's elegant, it's classy, it's sophisticated, but it ain't that expensive. So then the next one, next element that's important is two additional emotional benefits. And uh, there was a recent very extensive study by Pfizer and they made two very interesting conclusions. The most effective advertisement contained no more than three benefits, three emotional benefits. And once more than three benefits were promoted, effectiveness declined. Now, emotive benefit descriptions supported by hard facts and statistics were more than twice as effective as just stated facts. Risk reversal. Inclusion of a risk reversal will increase increase closure rates by up to 57%. So when people buy something, they say, can I afford it? Do I really need it? What if I find it cheaper somewhere else? What if I don't like the color? And so the more you can reduce the risk, the more chances you have of making a sale. And there's many, many, many ways to do this. Money back guarantee totally reduces the risk, totally removes the risk, but who the hell wants to give money back? 30-day trial, same deal. Testimonials, There's another person, just like me, they bought it, they love it, it's very effective for them, it's terrific. Awards, Um, any of those things work, there's lots and lots of them. Added value, when you add value, you can increase sales by up to 67%. Now you can have an additional product, like 20% more, buy one, get one free, complimentary service, um, a related offer, call us now and we'll do whatever. Then you need a call to action. So if you don't ask them to do something, they won't. Lessen the pain of payment and then test, test, test. Try several headlines, test it, test it, test it, pick the most successful ones. So that's um, they're the 10 really critical elements to any form of communication. So don't think it's just for the oldies. It's for everybody that's uh, using new media as well. Next week, I'll be back to answering emails. And if I answer your email on air, I'll send you a copy of my new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition. Don't forget, I want to hear from you. So visit my website at bobpritchard.com. Sign up for my newsletter, email me, tweet me, become my contact on LinkedIn and tell me what it is about, what it is that you want me to talk about. And don't forget to grab a copy of my book at your favorite bookstore or at Amazon. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show. We're all about helping entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at exactly the same time. This is Bob Pritchard on Voice America Business, heard right across the world.
and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.